Hi, I'm Chris Till and this is the Digital Health, Digital Capitalism Podcast. Hi, welcome back. This is episode um, four of uh, my Digital Health, Digital Capitalism podcast. So uh, thanks for coming back. Uh, in this episode, I'm talking to Will Davies, who many people will be familiar with, particularly through his book, The Happiness Industry, which um, was uh, very popular, uh, but also he's written uh, quite a lot of stuff in uh, newspapers such as The Guardian, The New York Times, um, magazines such as The Atlantic, and um, many others. I've put some links up on my blog to some of uh, Will's writings, uh, so you can go there for a start um, if you're not already familiar with his stuff. You can find Will on Twitter at Davies underscore Will, and his website is potlatch at, sorry, potlatch.typepad.com. Um, as ever, very keen to hear back from listeners um, what they think about the issues we're, we're discussing. Um, so you can find me at Chris H. Till on Twitter, and my blog is this is not a sociology.blog. You should be able to download the podcast on um, SoundCloud, on um, iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. Also, apologies about the sound in this episode. I was speaking to Will on Skype and he was holed up in what looked like a very nice Moroccan cafe in London. And um, there was a bit of background noise. Most of the time it's not too bad, but on occasion it sounds like the... uh, Baristas are grinding coffee beans, which is quite annoying uh, for the background of a podcast, but perfectly understandable kind of thing to happen in a coffee shop. Uh, so sorry about that. I've tried to fiddle around with it in the editing to minimise it as much as possible. Hope it doesn't detract from your enjoyment. Hello. So uh, today I'm talking to Will Davies who is um, the author of The Limits of Neoliberalism and The Happiness Industry, um, both of which uh, many people will be familiar with, I think. Uh, So, hi, Will. Hi there. Thanks for talking to me today. Um, So, uh, I've um, I've been reading a lot of your stuff uh, recently, and um, although the theme of the podcast is digital health, digital capitalism... um, it's maybe not perfectly aligned with uh, all of the things that you write. I think you are uh, engaged with um, thinking about digital uh, technologies alongside um, issues of um, happiness, wellness, more more generally. Yeah. Uh, so I think you um, you you fit a, a lot with a lot of the concerns that uh, I have. Um, and so one of the main things we will be talking about today is is your book, The Happiness Industry. And um, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how you came to write that book. Um, what, what, what drew you to that, that topic? Sure. Uh, the origins of the book 
uh, some years ago now, it was I'd been interested in uh, the history of economics and how economics shapes public policy. Um, and that's actually what is one of the main concerns in, in the other book you mentioned, The Limits of Neoliberalism. Um, and it was after the financial crisis, or in, yeah. in the kind of, uh, as the financial crisis was, was, was being resolved over 2009-10, where I was fascinated to see how economists and economic policymakers were going to interpret what appeared to be a major structural and political failing in the architecture of the global economy. And noticed that one way in which um, economists sought to deal with this failure was to start to uh, place responsibility or blame, as it were, on um, aspects of human emotions and on the brain or on uh, what behavioral economists call choice architectures or heuristics and this sort of thing. Um, and it was that initially, this, this, this slightly uh, sense of disbelief, really, that that economics was being reformed and, and propped up by uh, turning to particular aspects of psychology and to notions of affect and to um, the sort of uh, less rational aspects of the mind and the brain um, and physiology uh, as a way of uh, explaining um, why markets didn't work as they were expected to work. And, and it was really from that that I started to then look further into the history of the relationship between economics and psychology, which has a long and, and complicated history, and that's really what the happiness industry is about, I suppose. Um, and how, you know, what the way in which economics uh, came together with psychology at certain points in its history, and then uh, separated again, and, and where did the uh, study of, 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 of market psychology uh, go once economists had abandoned it, and then how did it get come, get brought back in? So, so that was really what I was interested in. Was was this um, long-standing um, kind of love-hate relationship between economics and psychology, which seemed to have entered a new phase in the aftermath of 2008-9? Yeah, and so that's that's fascinating, and because I suppose actually the language of um, of psychology had been in economics for quite a long time. You know, we, we talk about uh, an economy being in depression um, and confidence in markets being really important. So, to some extent, is this um, is this a, uh, those kinds of uh, terms and characteristics uh, and analysis being applied initially on a sort of a macro level to the economy being uh, confident or the market being confident to connecting that with individual level? Um, emotional states? I, I don't think that's quite the right way around because, no. I mean, the macroeconomics doesn't emerge until the 1930s, mm. whereas economics, uh, neoclassical economics, which develops in the 1870s, uh, was uh, concerned with questions of, of, of choice, of, right. um, of preference, of utility maximization, um, of... Um, I mean, in a sense, you know, especially in the Austrian tradition of neoclassical economics, there's quite a lot of recognition of the of the fact that people um, behave in often quite exuberant or disruptive ways in the economy. So, um, with really with the crisis of classical political economy and the emergence of neoclassical economics in the 1860s and 1870s, which coincides with a lot of developments in what we now would call psychology, um, and the division between economics and psychology really wasn't 
clear during the mm. 1860s and, and uh, early 1870s. And that's why one of the figures that I concentrate on in the happiness industry is William Stanley Jevons, who is the, um, really the, the founder of, of the English tradition of neoclassical economics. But he was very much shaped by um, both the thought of Jeremy Bentham, who is obviously a key figure in applying economics to the mind, um, but also uh, by other developments in, the, in, 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 in what was called psychophysics of people like Gustav Fechner and others uh, who were interested in trying to turn the mind-body problem into a, uh, rather than being a, a, a philosophical problem as it had been since Descartes, um, but turning it into something that could be tested under sort of quasi-laboratory conditions, even though they didn't really have laboratories at that time, but to, to run experiments on the body as a way of trying to understand what is the relationship between the body and the mind. And that was quite influential on the uh, some of the pioneering neoclassical economists of the of the 1860s and 70s, like like Jevons. Yeah. So, would you say that that um, you know that, that attempt to uh, take a, a scientific uh, empiricist um, approach to that, uh, and as you mentioned, to, to almost to create those kind of laboratory um, conditions uh, of a sorts, is something that's something that, that, that's continued on, and it's something you mentioned in terms of. Um, one of the things which uh, the spread of digital technologies um, and the sort of the, the big data kind of um, uh, developments has had is what you call the building of a new laboratory, which effectively mm. encompasses all of society. Um, yeah. So, w what is it that you see as producing this this new laboratory? Well, in order to generate psychological knowledge um, of the sort that we now understand psychology. Um, you need to have people under some form of observation or to subject them to some kind of um, methodological scrutiny. Um, and uh, the origins of modern psychology are often attributed to the moment when Wilhelm Wundt uh, created his uh, laboratory in Leipzig in the 1870s. Um, and so the institutional uh, and physical framework within which psychological knowledge is generated is absolutely key because otherwise you're effectively involved in some kind of folk wisdom or um, speculation which was what you know people like um, uh, Jeremy Bentham and um, David Hume and others were, were doing something like that they were basing their account of psychology on combination of introspection and um, and speculation about the nature of human beings um, but this idea that you can actually generate a, uh, a, a, a disciplinary science of psychology obviously does depend on some kind of infrastructure of, of, of observation and testing. Now, um, digital technology, uh, which has permeated our everyday lives uh, more and more rapidly um, over the last 30 years or so, to the point where now every time you you, know, you have a smartphone in your pocket, and you, you know, you have a have an Oyster card, and you have a um, loyalty card, and so on. You're leaving a data trail everywhere. Now that means this traceability is obviously uh, a condition of a different and new form of of, of, of behaviorist uh, knowledge, and that is really what um, uh, behavioral data analytics is concerned with. And that's what a lot of the the, the claims and, and promises that are being made, things like smart cities and um, uh, and, and the like, um, are uh, rest on the idea that this is going to generate um, the, the kind of knowledge that behaviourists have long 
seen seeking, which potentially makes uh, human behavior predictable in certain ways. Uh, I think it's also worth saying in terms of the history of economics that um, yeah, economists who later would become associated with neoliberalism, like um, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, they argued um, in the 1920s and 30s onwards that um, the reason we need to organize our society around markets is that markets are themselves a type of um, knowledge producing infrastructure. They, that markets are a bit like laboratories in the sense that um, when we go shopping or when we buy stocks and shares or whatever it might be, that we are um, we're creating a form of data. We're, we're expressing a preference uh, or evaluation, which is being fed into this huge computer called the price system. Um, and they argued that the price system of the market was the only available computer of this sort and that there was no alternative to it because um, an alternative uh, simply wouldn't have the same real-time computational capacity as the market. Now, the, I think the interesting thing about this turn towards big data and uh, ubiquitous data capture is that that potentially throws the challenge back upon those neoliberal arguments, that, uh, admittedly nearly 100 years on, to say, well, actually, maybe we do have non-market uh, ways of, of capturing and calculating data in our everyday lives. And I think you know, the fact that now um, there's some of the most powerful companies in the world don't, don't really sell us stuff, I think is quite telling. You know, if you think of Google and, and, and Facebook or even Amazon are sort of trying to kind of, I mean, obviously Amazon's business does depend on retail, but they, they uh, a lot of what they're doing seems to be about trying to get around the, 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 the sense that one is actually doing any shopping. I mean, this they've got this new store where you can just walk in and grab things off the shelf and, and you get debited later, but, um, or, or these services where they just send you things in the post without you having expressed a preference for them because their, their algorithms um, suggest you will like them. Uh, so there's a sort of interesting turn to a kind of almost not, a, I wouldn't say post-market society, but perhaps a post-neoliberal society. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, there's lots of these elements. I think it's uh, um, Michael O'Leary, the boss of Ryanair, has said recently that he, he foresees in the next few years all Ryanair flights will be free. Mm. Um, and you'll, you know, you'll pay little extras for uh, whatever you want for bags and for food and this kind of thing. Mm. Um, and people have talked about this as kind of a gift economy um, yeah. in various contexts. But, of course, there is payment going on there. But also, as you say, it's 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 the production of this data, which for, mm. for some it is where it's perhaps where the value is. Um, yeah. And um, I think I've always assumed that this was just just about because the data is um, is valuable to someone else. It, you know, it can be sold on to advertisers or, or it's useful in some other ways. But um, I've been thinking recently about how, um, of course, a, a lot of this it is about control as well. And if you'll, you'll have read about the... Uh, the um, system which China are just uh, introducing, the, uh, mm. it's called Sesame Credit, uh, this credit yeah. system, and it's with, with their, their social networks and their, their kind of versions of Amazon and things like this all tied into it. And you get mm. this, this kind of Black Mirror style mm. yeah. so, social score. Um, and if, so, of course, that, that is about, I'm sure, about generating value in certain ways, but it is also about social control. Um, and... Um, and management of, of populations and about um, ideas around trust. Um, mm. And I think the way that that's tied into the state and, and governing and state concerns is, um, of course, that's a different context in China, yeah. but uh, we can perhaps see 
we know the connections between states and big tech companies already. We saw them all meeting with Trump last week. Um, and, and so th this is kind of, um, this is per perhaps kind of concerning. Um, and the, the kind of data that they're, they're interested in is, of course, also often it is that kind of affective data uh, as well that you're talking about. Sure. Well, I mean, I don't think it's, I think part of the, epistemology of big data is that you don't ask why you want it before you mm. get it. I mean, that's that's a kind of key distinction between a, a, a statistical epistemology which emerged in the 18th century and this big data epistemology. Um, because the statistical epistemology involved the creation of, of, of classifications such as um, married, single, dead, alive, um, um, employed, unemployed, all that, that didn't come quite a bit later. But um, And then you go around and you collect the data and you work out which, which classification to put it in. Whereas the big data alternative to that is that you scrape everything you possibly can from as many sources as you can and then you um, try and spot patterns within it. So mm. it has, I think what's um, slightly disconcerting about the whole thing is that you, it, it, it doesn't necessarily, it's, it, it's not that it's, it's a gender is concealed, although I think it's gender is concealed, I suspect, and I, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I think that you know, a lot of the way in which Google and Facebook and, and so on work is uh, to expand and surveil first and then to ask questions later, because that, in a way, is the whole um, uh, basis of their uh, epistemology and their methodology. Um, and uh, I think that this is why they, you know, this is why I think, in a way, it's so important for Google to have this um, quite playful um, uh, R&D culture where people can do, uh, they can spend 20% of their time doing whatever the hell they like, um, is that I genuinely don't think that these companies I mean, I'm sure they have a strategy, and I'm sure that when it comes to a, a direct competitor like um, Siemens, uh, like Samsung is to, to Apple, I'm sure they have a, a strategy for rebuffing that that rival. But in terms of um, the future, I think that this is kind of constantly unfolding, and I think that the possibilities for the data, um, it, it, you know, with, with things like artificial intelligence developing very rapidly at the moment, um, maybe I'm maybe I'm just I don't know what that agenda is, but I, I do also think that there's a um, part of their part of their part of their business depends on being able to capture as much data as possible, um, so as to then discover what the possibilities might be later. Yeah, absolutely, and and of course, one of the main ways in which they try to capture this data is through engaging us. Uh, kind of emotionally or affectively, um, you know, whether that's through um, giving us a means to, to communicate with our friends um, or through kind of um, uh, kind of fluffy interfaces or whatever, uh, gamify type interfaces. And um, uh, one of the things I found particularly uh, fascinating in your book um, was the, the connection that you made between, uh, um, or that, that you identified being made between economic growth and personal growth and this kind of connection mm. between positive psychology and the energy that's required to drive production and productivity. Um, yeah. with, um, and so I think you, you talk about the, uh, the use of antidepressants um, being effectively used to kind yeah. of stimulate desire. Um, and so what role do you see that as yeah. playing in, 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 for capitalism and, and economics? 
Well, I suppose there's, there's a couple of historical um, phases to this. Um, I think that after World War II, there was a turn towards a a, a, a new reconstructive uh, ideology of 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 flourishing and expansion, and this is when the whole notion of well-being comes into uh, existence. Really, um, the World Health Organization was founded just after World War II, and, and it created a new definition of health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, which is a sort of utopian vision, really, because no one has that. Um, so it, it, it sets the bar infinitely high for what health might mean, which um, is also a rather um, depressing um, thing to do, because it means that most of us spend most of our time unwell, um, if that's where the, 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 the definition of health is set. Um, but it went coincided with a, with a period of... Um, the, the, the Keynesian golden age when social mobility was high and um, at the same time you had in the, in the 50s you had the development of humanist psychology which was uh, tried to reorient um, psychology away from the study of, of behavior or, or deviance or whatever it might be uh, towards the, the study of human flourishing and, 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 and growth which is where you get ideas like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that kind of thing um, and I think that this whole culture um, of uh, the, the expansion and Flourishing and 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 and, and infinite possibility is a kind of post World War II phenomenon. But you then get the rise of what's uh, often called in sociology post Fordism, um, which emerges after the, the crisis of Keynesianism in the, in the 1970s, which makes um, affect and emotion an integral part of value creation in the workplace and, and an integral part of the, the value of products as they're sold to consumers. So um, the fact that we have to be positive and upbeat at work. The fact that we shop according to our, our kind of you know emotional needs as much as our material ones. These are these are things that, that, that the concept of post-fordism suggests emerged over the course of the seventies, eighties, and nineties. You know, in a context of a more flexible um, post-industrial model of capitalism, and that I think placed a kind of greater strain on on the self to to be um, to, to take on a kind of responsibility really. To, to be entrepreneurial, to be um, to be positive, to be uh, uh, satisfied, to have a, a life which where which is constantly lived according to to, to, to personal um, ambition, the um, maximization of pleasure. These sorts of things shift from their post-war moment, where they're still broadly collective, a collective mood of. Of, of hope and possibility as expressed in the expansion of the welfare state or um, the expansion of, 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 of certain public goods like the Arts Council or BB2 mm. or these sorts of things that, that were kind of legacies of that of that era um, to becoming a more kind of personal uh, obligation and that's also when depression and anxiety really um, become such dominant cultural uh, phenomena um, and become increasingly treated as medical ones in the wake of the DSM-3 of 1980, which, which um, um, radically changed psychiatric uh, approach to, to mental health, particularly in the United States, but, but also in the UK. Um, yeah, exactly. And um, I, um, I don't think you refer to them um, in your book, um, or in the happiness industry book at least, but um, some of what you're saying um, seem to me to con connect with uh, some of the theories of the Italian and autonomous Marxists, people like uh, Biffo Berardi and um, Christina yeah. Razzi and, and Maurizio Lazzarotto, people such as that. 
Um, yeah. And of course, they see uh, they see desire and uh, and affect these things as being um, a, sort of a direct um, driver uh, of of capitalism in in the way that the sort of the physical bodies um, of the worker were in the sort of the nineteenth and, and the twentieth century. Um, is that something you would see that being actually a really direct material? Um, connection or, or is it kind of more of an analogic an, uh, analogical connection or um yeah would you see that in those kinds I'm of sure there terms? is a I mean there is no I mean I think I mean you know my, my work isn't within that that autonomous Marxist tradition yeah. but at the same time I think it broadly uh I mean I share a lot of and Berardi's work on 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 oppression and uh capitalism I think is you know very interesting and um uh, likewise for, for the other people you mentioned, like Lazarato and so on. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with that analysis. I think that they, you know, ultimately their analysis um, stems from a particular reading of Grundrisse, which is, sort of shapes that all of that um, that tradition. And I'm just not so sort of steeped in that that theoretical uh, agenda. But I think it's clear that um, I mean, one thing which I which I have tried to focus on is is, is to look at I mean, there's there's a, there's an absolutely clear productivity um, agenda and anxiety running through the the workplace well-being um, uh, discourse and 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 management literature, which is that basically um, the productivity in the workplace is um, threatened by stress, anxiety, depression, uh, absence. Um, high staff turnover, and what is increasingly called employee disengagement, which is a fairly nebulous concept, but it basically means people kind of not caring enough. Um, and this is, you don't have to go to the autonomous literature to see this, it's quite clear in, in HR literature yeah. that yeah. the um, the way in which the, the mind and body and affect are mobilized um, in the workplace in, in contemporary capitalism is um, for specific economic purposes uh, and driven by an anxiety that that um, that that stress depression anxiety and, and other forms of particularly I think the psychosomatic dimensions of, of, of contemporary illnesses are, are a particular threat to, um, to to management and which you know and you can then extrapolate that to a threat to profitability, which is more the sort of Marxist. One of the uh, assumptions that you um, suggested, or seem to suggest is underlying a lot of the interventions you talk about in the happiness industry book, um, is this idea that people are not really in control of their own actions or desires, or they're not conscious of them. Um, and um, that they're maybe beyond their comprehension. Whereas um, the idea is that the, these experts or these systems, um, this kind of social laboratory that you kind of talk about, are able to sort of see into um, see into the unconscious desires of um, of people and of citizens, and then nudge them in in one way or another. Is, is that a kind of a fair um, summary of what you're suggesting? Or um, I mean, it it sounds more. A little bit more paranoid than I <laughs> than I, I hope express it myself. I've been accused of that. I think before, that there's think, a um, <laughs> no, no. But I mean, you know, and I get accused. I, the book gets sometimes the, my my book gets treated as, as paranoid by, by some people. But I mean, I think that there's um, 
and you can see this really in, in the work of Nicholas Rose on, on yeah. the history of psychology and the psych sciences as well, is that, uh, I mean, the way Rose expresses it is that uh, if, if liberalism is a, is a political system founded on a premise of individual liberty, then you need people who are sort of experts on how liberty gets exercised effectively. And those experts are chiefly the, those who offer a science of the, the mind and the and, and um, I think what's helpful about the way Rose framed it is to recognise that that psychology isn't just a discipline in university. I mean, it's also something that is um, that provides the, the the framework for for marketing, market research, for um, HR, um, for um, all these, uh, things like cognitive behavioural therapy or whatever it might be. Um, but the, everywhere around us, it's I think I don't mean this. I, don't, I mean hopefully this doesn't sound paranoid, but I think it's it's clearly true that the whole time our preferences and choices and 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 desires are being people are various institutions are trying to 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 analyze them and and preempt them in certain ways because you can make a lot of money that way and um, and it does I suppose start in some ways with with Bentham back in the the 1780s because Bentham believed that policymakers needed to have an understanding of what people's motives were in his language um, and if you want to get people to act in the in the interest of the greatest number or towards the greatest happiness of the greatest number you need to have a, 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 a you need to have a, a clear and empirical understanding of how they are likely to respond to certain cues um, so that if you want them to stop dropping litter. I mean, this is an example, but you know, you need to understand whether it's better to jab them with a cattle prod or whether to pay yeah. them not to, or whether to, um, or, you know, offer them a reward of, 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 you know, a holiday for not doing so or whatever. You, know, you need to have some science of that. You yeah. can't just do it by saying thou shalt not drop litter because that shout doesn't mean anything for Bentham. It's just sort of a gibberish word. Um, and so this, this idea that has now become has resurfaced with the idea of nudge, um, yeah. which is not that new. Um, I think nudge has, the, the novelty of not nudging behavioral economics is hugely exaggerated. Um, but it's, um, of course, yes, people want to know what's going on in our in our minds. Um, and there are, there, there are always going to be some people who are, some of whom are snake oil merchants who uh, offer to sell you that information. And, and I suppose the current example of that would be the neuromarketing um, but there was also there was craniology in the late 19th century. So, so that that the fascination with the science of, 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 of other people's thoughts is probably probably quite old. I've kept you a little while, so uh, won't keep you too much longer. But I just wanted to end on something on on some positives, as you do in the book as well. Uh, so, in the in the in the last chapter of the happiness industry book, you suggest some ways of potentially of tackling the problems that you've outlined things um things like restrictions on advertising promotion of democratic dialogue mm-hmm. um more, more sort of democratic control of businesses uh, and things like this um can you see any of that have you seen any of that emerging Do, have you identified any kind of roots of potential roots of that um that might sprout up mm-hmm. um, or has uh, has anyone um have you seen anyone take any influence, any uh, politicians or social policy uh, makers uh, taking influence from your book? I think, um, I mean, the, the arguments I'm making there are simply that, um, you know, there are political choices um, and, yeah. uh, you, and, and, and that uh, the, 
and one of the arguments in the book is that the obsession with with trying to achieve objective knowledge of other people's feelings is partly a uh, an anti-democratic um, uh, agenda of not wanting to engage with people dialogically and, and, and thereby therefore democratically. So it's simply trying to say, well, actually, there are other ways of, 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 of um, governing people, if you want to use that term. I mean, I, I used to work, I used to study uh, employee-owned companies, and it's very difficult to run an employee-owned company. You do have to talk to employees as it's pretty annoying. A lot and it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to do it's much easier to have a an hr department who can inter- implement an employee engagement agenda that's authorized by science as it were um so um in some ways i'm just kind of pointing out certain um aspects of, of the human condition that will always be there um but which um, the, the behaviorist agenda seems mm. kind of circumvent in terms of um whether whether the, 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 the social approach to the mind or the, discur- the dialogical approach to the mind has um, purchased anywhere. I suppose one area which is, which is doing reasonably well and which I um, express my support for in the book is what's called social prescribing, which is um, that someone goes to the doctor and has a, a, a complex set of, 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 of problems and needs and um, often psychosomatic connected to, to um, uh, it might be connected to loneliness as well and so on and all of these sort of problems are increasingly landing up at the doorstep of the NHS because there are just not enough other aspects of our society nowadays that, that uh, recognize people as having needs. I mean we're all treated as having, as being responsible for ourselves and being active and so on and, and in some ways GP surgery is one of the only places you can go and say I, I can't can't cope yeah. um, and, and social prescribing is, is interesting because instead of immediately medicalizing the issue um, and of course you know, I'm not saying that, that the people who, who, who have I'm not saying that things, I'm not sort of anti-medicalization as such but um, uh, but it, you know doctors now have the power to write a prescription saying that here's a choir you can join here's a, here's a, a fishing club or a gardening club or something like that now not, I'm not suggesting that, that is the, in itself the pathway to, a, to a, a better society or to a completely different approach to mental health, but it at least signals a recognition that, uh, that the social stress is a social phenomenon um, and that uh, therefore it it's, uh, requires different forms of social relationships and different forms of institutions um, and that not everything can be um, explained away in terms of the body the whole time. Um, and I think there's something quite liberating about that. Uh, I mean, I've had a lot of very positive response to my book from people who are sufferers with chronic um, mental health and, and uh, physical health conditions uh, because they find the, um, uh, the narrative about that, that mental health and that suffering have political and cultural and historical components and aren't all simply um, matters of, of, of behavior or physiology. They find quite liberating, although it doesn't mean that the distress instantly goes away. It certainly doesn't mean that, but at least it means that the individual isn't um, just ill in some, in, in some sort of permanent or uh, perhaps um, in some permanent way or, or perhaps in a way where they, they're responsible for or something like that. So I think that there's, there's, there's hope in, in, in trying to resuscitate aspects of a, of a social um, and cultural approach to mental health that I think has been there in the past and I think could be there again. 
Okay, oh, that's great. That's that's, that's a great. nice positive uh, to end on as well. Yeah, and I'm 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 sure you're right about that. And it's um, I suppose it would perhaps take uh, other areas of um, uh, of life and can um, outside of that as well to be to be taking on um, on that kind of approach uh, of effectively I suppose kind of promoting the social. Um, Mm. Which is uh, which is is perhaps particularly difficult uh, has been particularly difficult in the last few years, um, sure. as some of those things have been broken down by austerity uh, and and other things. Um, sure, that's great. Um, thanks so much for talking to me. It's been fascinating. Great, not at all. Uh, really, okay. I've really well, enjoyed reading let, your. Let me know when stuff. the. Great. Thanks. Yeah, we'll do. I'll I'll I'll, tw- I'll um, tweet it out to you. Brilliant. Do that. Great. great. Look thanks forward to it. All right, have a good Christmas. You too, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, that was the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, it'd be great if anyone would like to rate or review the podcast on iTunes. The theme music is Bleeps Galore by Rocco. The incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78 and both were used on a Creative Commons license. See you next time!